Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, just open up your Bibles to uh, John 12 if you haven't got it open there already. We're going to be finishing off today this last paragraph in John 12. We've been going really slow through John 12, I know. Next week, to let you know, we're going to be doing a Christmas series. I know you guys love Christmas series, but Christmas series are the bane of every pastor. Every year you have to come back and find something out of the, the narratives of, uh, of the early chapters of the Gospels. But, but we'll be starting a Christmas series next week, and uh, then when we come into the new year, we'll be going into John um, 13 and the upper room discourse of Jesus and looking at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And there's some great, great teaching in that part. Uh, but this morning, we're going to be finishing off um, John chapter 12. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast called Unbelievable by John uh, with Justin Briley. And it's a podcast where they have uh, different people of uh, different persuasions come on and talk and dialogue and debate. And this particular person had written a book called The um, Lost Message of Jesus. And what he was claiming is that we evangelicals, when we read the Gospels, we actually read in our own understanding of Jesus. And we've actually lost the true message of what Jesus taught. Um, now, this is not a new thing. I mean, uh, what tends to happen is when people come to Jesus, they tend to read their own presuppositions into the text. For example, activists, when they look at the life of Jesus, they tend to see Jesus as an activist. Or moral teachers, they tend to see Jesus as a great moral teacher. For example, Gandhi, when he was reading uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he said, wow, this is the, the highest in ethical teaching. He saw Jesus as a great moral teacher. So the question is, are we evangelicals just reading into the text the Jesus that we want to see in the text? Now, the reason I say this is the passage that we're going to look at today, uh, John chapter 12, verses 44 to 50, is really a hinge passage in the Gospel of John. If you've been with us, you will have known that Gospel of John is divided into two sections. You have John chapter 1 to John chapter 12, which is the book of signs. You know, John's word for miracle is the word a sign because a, um, John does, doesn't see miracles as naked displays of God's power, but rather they are things that point to the identity of Jesus. So when Jesus fed the 5,000, it pointed to the fact that he was the bread of life, for example. So his miracles are signs that point to his identity and for the past 12 chapters, um, John has given us seven signs that point to who Jesus is as the divine Son of God. But then in chapters 13 to chapter 21, we have what is called the book of glory. All the way through the past 12 chapters, we've seen Jesus talk about that hour in which he is going to be glorified. And he's referring to the cross where he would, in the greatest act of and demonstration of love, he would glorify his father by laying down his life on the cross. And so this little passage here is like a transitionary passage. It's like a hinge passage. 
And if you were here last week, you'll remember that um, last week we, we saw that the context of John chapter 12 is that it is the final week before Jesus is crucified. And somewhere in that final week, Jesus gives a final invitation for Israel to come and believe in him and become sons of light. But they rejected him. And yet it seems Jesus cries out, verse 44, one last time. And many theologians have seen this paragraph as what is called the kerjima of Jesus, the essential teaching of Jesus. If you could boil it down, this is what Jesus actually taught. This is the gospel according to Jesus. And as we look at these verses, I think you can boil this down to four pillars. That the gospel according to Jesus is based upon four pillars. And if you don't have these four foundation pillars, then you don't have the message of Jesus. You don't have the gospel according to Jesus. So let's have a look at these four pillars of the gospel according to Jesus. The first pillar has to do with the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? <laughs> Who is Jesus? As I said, for the past... 12 chapters, we've seen John try and teach us about the identity of Jesus. Well, look down in verse 44, we read this. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Uh, now, our, our house at home is a double story house. And um, what that means is that uh, every afternoon around dinner time, when uh, Tegan has cooked the dinner, she'll often call out to the kids, it's dinner time. And because most of our kids are on the second story of our house, they don't hear. And so what Tegan will do is she'll get Bella, she'll send Bella with a message to the kids to come because it's dinner time. Now, if they ignore Bella's message, it's not just Bella that they're ignoring, but it's also they're ignoring the one who sent them, Tegan. And there's going to be trouble, you can bet it. <laughs> but, but if they also, if they accept Bella's message and come down for dinner, then they're not just accepting um, Bella's message, but they're accepting Tegan, the one who sent Bella. And this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if you believe in me, you're not just believing in me, but you're believing in the one who sent me. For the past 12 chapters, John has been teaching us that Jesus is the sent one from the Father. He's been sent with a mission. He's been sent on a mission with a message. But he is more than just a messenger. Because as we learnt in John chapter 1, John the Baptist was someone who was sent from God. But Jesus is much more than that. Look down in verse 45. We read this. And Jesus said, Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. You know, one of the essential things that John has been teaching is that Jesus claimed that he and the Father were one, were one. Just turn over in your Bibles for a moment over to John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, we see Jesus heals a lame man on the Sabbath and then in verse 18, John gives us an editorial comment. He says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he healed this lame man on the Sabbath, 
But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, John wants us to see that Jesus is one with the Father. He's equal in his divine essence with the Father. In fact, over in a few chapters in John 14, Philip will say, Jesus, just show us the Father and we will believe. And, and Jesus responds to Philip and says, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And in John 17, Jesus prayed to his father and said, Father, glorify me with the glory that we shared before the creation of the world. You see, who is Jesus? Jesus is the one sent, the divine son sent from the father, fully God and fully man. Now, I don't know if you uh, were alive in the 2000s. I certainly was. <laughs> and in the 2000s, there came out this book called The Da Vinci Code. Did anyone read that highly theological book, The Da Vinci Code? Uh, later had a movie made about it. And uh, basically, one of the claims of The Da Vinci Code, which is not a new claim, but it's actually the claim of liberal theologians, is that all the way throughout the second and third centuries, there were all these competing Christologies, these competing understandings of who Jesus was. And Dan Brown claims, or he makes the claim in his book, and you, you see it in one of the scenes in the movie, that at the Council of Nicaea, the, the, the orthodox understanding of who Jesus is that the church has adopted today, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that was just the Christology that won the day. That all the bishops got together and they fought and they voted and they voted in that Christology. Now, there is an element of truth to that, that there were a number of different understandings of Jesus in the second and third century, but they were always considered to be heretical understandings of Jesus. For example, adoptionism. Adoptionism is the idea that Jesus was just a human Messiah, who God the Father adopted to be his Messiah. If you've ever passed the Christadelphians on, uh, in uh, Oakton here, that's what the Christadelphians believe. Or Arianism. Arianism came from this guy called Arius. Arius, um, he was actually became very popular because he was a musician and he put his theology to music. Uh, but Arius believed that uh, Jesus was this created being of the Father through whom the Father created and redeemed the entire world. And the Jehovah's Witnesses are the modern-day Arians. That's what they believe about Jesus. But I hope you've seen, as we've been studying the Gospel of John, that John, the apostle, the one whom Jesus loved, the one who at the Last Supper lay on the breast of Jesus, the one who spent three years following Jesus around, the one who wrote this gospel, the way that he understood Jesus is that Jesus is the divine son. As he would say in the prologue, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Any authentic, real gospel needs the pillar of the identity of Jesus. 
that Jesus isn't just some created being or he isn't just some um, Messiah that was adopted by the Father, but Jesus is the divine Son of God, fully God and fully man. Now you might ask, why do we need, why is this so important? I mean, the Mormons, they're nice people and so are the Jehovah's Witnesses. They seem such nice people. Why is this such a significant issue, the identity of Jesus? Well, it's because only Jesus could be our Redeemer. Only Jesus could. He needed to be 100% human so that he could surrender his body on the cross and so he could surrender his human life on the cross for our sins. You see, a human had sinned against God and so it would take a human to die for the sins of humanity. But only someone who was fully God could also die so that their death would be of infinite value for all of the sins of all human beings. And so only Jesus could do it. And so any gospel according to Jesus needs to begin with a correct understanding of who is Jesus. Jesus is the divine son sent from the father. But the second pillar of the gospel according to Jesus coming from Jesus's own words has to do with the lostness of human beings. Look down in verse 46 in your Bibles. Jesus says, I have come into the world as light so that for the purpose of whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, all the way throughout John's gospel, we've seen this metaphor of light and this metaphor of darkness. And I think the implication here is that if Jesus is coming into the world as light so that people may not remain in darkness, the implication is, is that people are not morally neutral. People are covered in darkness. People are not essentially good. People are actually born sinners, covered in darkness. They're lost. But it goes, it's even worse than that. Look down in verse 47. Jesus says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, just turn back a few pages in your Bible just for a moment, just back to John 5 again, because it's interesting, over in John 5 and verse 22, um, Jesus says this, he says, For the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So Jesus says here that he did not come to judge, but to save the world. And yet over here, he says that the Father has given judgment to the Son. Now, what is this all about? Well, it's the difference between Jesus's first coming and Jesus's second coming. In Jesus's first coming, he came to save the world. He came to offer himself up to be the savior of the world. But when Jesus comes again, Jesus will come as judge. Paul would say in John 17 that God has given judgment to one man, the man Jesus Christ. In Revelation, it pitches that judgment as a great white 
throne judgment. It is great because it will be a judgment of all people who have ever lived. The throne is pictured as being a white throne because it will be a perfect judgment. You know, human judges, they don't often can make mistakes, but there will be no mistakes that are made on that day when Jesus judges the thoughts and intentions and actions and lives of every single person. And how will that judgment be rendered? Look down in verse 48. He says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. You know, if you uh, commit a crime and you break the law and you appear before a judge, it's actually not the judge who condemns you. It's actually the law that condemns you. You've broken the law, and so you come under the judgment and condemnation of the law. The judge just hands down the sentence. He just hands down the verdict. And before the great white throne judgment, where which all people will appear, God will actually judge people by his law. And the Bible says that the law is written on the hearts of people so that no one is without excuse and every tongue will be stilled, it says in Romans, because of the perfect judgment of God. But not only that, Jesus says that the word that I've spoken will judge him. What he means, I think, by this, I think he means that his gospel, because remember, he had just been issuing an invitation to Israel to believe in him and receive him. And he's saying that if you don't receive and respond to the gospel, then that very gospel will judge you because you haven't responded and believed and trust in Jesus. So this is the second pillar of the gospel according to Jesus. Any true gospel needs to mention the lostness of humanity. Human beings are not just morally neutral. They are covered in darkness and headed for judgment. J.D. Greer, he writes this in his book, Above All. He says, I believe many Christians do not share the gospel because they are not convinced in their hearts that people actually go to hell. The creed they endorse may claim that, but functionally they are universalists. In their hearts, they assume that God grades on a curve and most good sincere folks out there of whatever religion will eventually make it. God is a God of love, right? J.D. Greer writes, can I be candid for a moment? I struggle with this too. In fact, I've never realized how deep-seated my own lack of true belief was until I met Rhonda. Rhonda was in her mid-twenties and had grown up in New England, far from the Bible be- my Bible Belt background. It's rare even today to find an American who's never heard anything about Christianity, but that was Rhonda. So I started, J.D. Greer says, with the basics, who God is, why Jesus came, and how we could receive him as Lord and Savior. And she asked lots of questions. But he writes, I wasn't prepared for the question she asked last. She said, you actually believe this? Yes, of course I do, I said. She replied, because you don't act like you believe it. If I believe what you're saying, that everyone in my life who didn't know Jesus was separated from God's love and headed to hell, I'm not sure how I would make it through the day. I'd be constantly on my knees pleading with people to listen. 
She kept on going, you don't seem bothered by this at all. You lay out the details pretty well, but it seems like a philosophical question. Not what you say, a matter of life and death. J.D. Greer says, I felt like I'd been punched in the gut. I knew she was right. See, any real presentation of the gospel according to, the G- to Jesus has to face the reality of the lostness of humanity. Jesus himself said it. He came into the world as light so that whosoever believes in him would not remain in darkness. By nature, people are not morally neutral. They are in darkness and they need redemption. They need saving. And they will face the judgment of God one day. Well, the third pillar of the gospel according to Jesus is the saving work of Jesus. (laughs) The good news. (laughs) Jesus, as he says in verse 47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The whole point of Jesus' life was to hand over his life on the cross. I just read it this morning in my in my soap devotions. It's so beautiful just to remember Jesus, one of his last cries from the cross was, it is finished. It is finished. This is what I came to do. This is what my whole purpose of life was, was to save people from their sins, was to lay down my life as a sacrifice for sinners. But the fourth pillar on which the gospel according to Jesus is built is the response that is needed. Look down in verse 49, Jesus says, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know his commandment is eternal life. I think what he means by that is if people believe in this commandment, they get eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. You see, Jesus commands us to believe in him. He commands us to turn and trust in him. As John would say in John 1 verse 12, to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. So I hope you see that this is the gospel according to Jesus. That we're not just making up or reading into Jesus' words something that he himself has not said. It's based on who Jesus is. It's based on who we are. We're sinners. It's about what Jesus has done and it's how how are you to respond and what happens if you do and what happens if you don't. This is the gospel according to Jesus. But what do we do with a message like this? It's one thing to be confident that we have the right message. But this week I was just, I was walking to church because Abby needed her car to be fixed up. <laughs> and on my way, I was just praying, Lord, how, how should I apply this message to my life? And how do you want me to help our church family apply it to their lives? And there's one word in verse 44 that really spoke to me. Look down your Bibles in verse 44 again. It says, and Jesus cried out. Four times in John's gospel, this same word is used. 
And every time this word is used, it's used of a public proclamation of Jesus. For example, in John 11, it says that Jesus cried out in a, large, in a loud voice and said, Lazarus, come forth. You know, when we think about Jesus, as I said, some people see him as a radical, other people see him as a good moral teacher. I wonder how many of us see Jesus as an evangelist, as crying out and calling out to the crowds and saying, come, believe in me, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And if Jesus was an evangelist, then he calls his people to be evangelist, to do the work of evangelism, to share his message with others. And I don't know about for you, but for me, I struggle to do that. But as a church, we have the perfect opportunity coming up in the next few weeks to share the gospel with our community. With Carol's Alive, we have the perfect opportunity to invite family and friends along. At our Christmas Eve service, we have the perfect opportunity to have this place full of people far from God who need to hear about Him and need to hear His message. And Christmas time, I think, is a time where you can actually speak openly to people about the message of Jesus, and they're more likely to talk about it because it's in their face. You know, even in the midst of all the consumerism, there's still traces of gospel truth that you can speak to people about. But I think one of the things that keeps me from sharing and maybe one of the things that keeps you from sharing is fear, is fear. Who here struggles with fear when it comes to sharing their faith? It's fear. So how do you overcome fear? How do you overcome fear? Well, one thing that this passage really spoke to me, like the Lord really spoke to me about was verse 49. Just look down at verse 49 again. Jesus says, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Jesus didn't go and, and spread the message in his own authority. No, he just shared what the Father had told him to share. He just shared the truth of what the Father had told him to share. He just went in the Father's authority. And Jesus has said to his church, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go, make disciples of all nations. We go in the authority of Jesus. You know, just imagine Bella, she gets upstairs and she goes to one of our other daughters, dinner's ready, and they say to her, I don't like that. It doesn't matter. It's no skin off Bella's nose because she's just given a message to share. Whether they like it or not, it doesn't matter. She's just been given a message to share. And in the same way, we've been given a message to share. How people respond to the truth is not up to us or not. This really helped me this week in thinking about my preaching. Because sometimes I have to say difficult things from this pulpit as you work your way through the Bible, you get to difficult passages. But if I'm preaching the truth, it doesn't really matter. 
It doesn't really matter because if I'm preaching the truth, I'm saying what I'm, I've been told to say, and that's all that matters. To bring honor in God, and God will bring the increase in his own time. But another thing I would say to you if you struggle with fear is this. Is allow love to drive out fear. Allow love to drive out fear. The love that God has for you and the love that you have for others. Today is the 1st of December. Can you believe it? And it's still freezing cold. What's happening, South Australia? What are you doing? But, uh, you know, I have a pool at home, and in my pool, I don't know if you've done this before, but, you know, you put your, your foot into the pool, and you dip your foot in the pool, and you sort of like, you know, even though it might be a warm day, you're still a bit hesitant to jump into the pool because, you know, it's going to be cold, and you're fearful of having that rush of cold come on you. Who here, who here knows what I'm speaking about? You know, you sort of like get in, you sort of put your foot in, you're a bit like tentative, a bit, bit fearful. But what would happen if your toddler came and they walked up to the side of the pool and they plopped in and started to sink below the water? That fear would instantly evaporate and you would jump in and you would rescue that toddler because you know they're in peril, they're in danger. Allow love to drive out fear. If it is true, as we've seen today, that people are not morally neutral, but they are covered in darkness and they are headed for judgment, then should we not be people who get out of our comfort zones to share the gospel? Richard Baxter, a, a Puritan, he wrote this. He said, I marvel how I can preach slightly and coldly, how I can let any man alone in their sins, and that I do not go to them and beseech them for the Lord's sake to repent, however they take it, and whatever pains or trouble it should cost me. I seldom come out of the pulpit, but my conscience smitten me that I haven't, done, done, haven't been more serious and fervent. It accuses me, should not me weep over such a people? Should, I, should not tears interrupt my words? Should not my cry aloud? Should I not show them and entreat them to come and believe and trust in Jesus? He says, preachers with a cold heart will never warm and awaken the consciences of their hearers. And the same is true for you and for me. If our hearts are not affected with the love of God, the love of God for us, and also love for people who are perishing, then we won't go. So allow God's love to drive out fear. You know, church family, we have the perfect opportunity coming up with Christmas. Let's take that opportunity. Let's step into the moment. Let's be praying for our family and friends. Let's invite them along to Carol's Alive. Let's invite them along to our, our Christmas Eve service. Let's have conversations with people because there can't be anything more important than that. I mean, Jesus, he cried out. This was his last public statement, and he cried out one last time. We should cry out 
and call out to people to come and believe and trust in Jesus. Let me pray.